Okay, uh, let's uh, get started. So um, I'm Ian Black. I'm a visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Center at LSE. And uh, I'm a former Middle East editor uh, and Jerusalem correspondent actually for the uh, Guardian. Um, so um, Amnon and I are going to uh, have a conversation, maybe 25 minutes, half an hour, and um, then we'll open it up the discussion for your uh, questions. So if you would like to ask a question, please type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, not the chat box. Um, we will then uh, address the questions to the speaker. Please do note that this event will be recorded and will be also live streamed on Facebook. If you would like to tweet about this event, please uh, you can please can you use the hashtag uh, LSE Middle East. Um, so without further ado, uh, I'm going to introduce the speaker. Anon Aran is senior lecturer in international relations, uh, international politics of the Middle East at City uh, University of London, where his main research focuses on the Arab-Israeli conflict, conflict and the foreign policy of uh, Middle East states. Previously, he was a fellow at uh, in, in, in international relations at LSE. Uh, Iran, Dr. Iran has also contributed to policy making forums through his work with the EU Middle East Peace Task Force, uh, ETN Zurich, Oxford Analytica, and he's commented on Middle Eastern affairs for the BBC. Bloomberg and CCTV. His book, Foreign Policy Analysis, New Approaches, uh, 2016, was recently published by Routledge. So without um, wasting your uh, time, Amnon, um, I'd like to welcome you to this uh, Middle East um, uh, Centre event. I'm very pleased to be able to discuss your uh, impressively well-researched book. So my first question is, I find your concepts, frameworks of entrenchment, engagement and unilateralism very useful. Please tell me a bit about how you concluded that was the best way to tell this complicated story. Well, thank you, Ian. It's a it's a pleasure to to be here. Uh, there were I would imagine three uh, key considerations that informed uh, my choice of these concepts. One really started from Henry Kissinger's famous quip that Israel has no foreign policy, only domestic politics. And the more I uh, looked at that sentence and thought about it, uh, I actually realized that Israeli foreign policy was much more organized, much more strategic. Uh, than is commonly 
uh, perceived, which brought me to step number two. Well, if things are a bit more organized and a bit more consistent, can we find maybe some labels that can help us guide through the myriad decisions and events that are always associated with Israel's foreign policy in the Middle East, but also beyond in relation to uh, rising powers at the time, such as China and India, uh, or more established powers like the EU and the United States. And then as I began to look, especially on Israeli foreign policy towards the Arab world, these consistencies in a kind of inductive process began to develop. So um, certain governments, such as uh, I say probably the most representative, the government of uh, the late Yitzhak Rabin uh, and Shimon Peres, was a quintessential government of engagement. What does that mean? That this government wanted to scale down the Israeli occupation. They wanted to reach some sort of arrangement of peace in exchange for territory. And they wanted to put a premium on diplomacy instead of the use of military force. Uh, right across the other side of the spectrum, you had governments that subscribed to entrenchment, for example, Benjamin Netanyahu's government and Yitzhak Shamir's government, which had a completely different conception. Uh, they were only willing to make peace for peace. Uh, the use of military force would still remain central, sometimes and often at the, expense, at the expense of diplomacy. And there was no clear intent to scale down uh, the occupation of the Palestinians. Uh, we can maybe discuss unilateralism uh, a bit later on uh, or now, but in a sense, this was really an inductive process. And once these labels were laid out, a lot of the policies Israel pursued vis-a-vis -vis the Arab world uh, made quite a lot of sense within those three conceptions. <clears throat> so did you uh, try these uh, categories out with the many decision makers you interviewed? And I was also keen to know uh, if you had any access to original uh, documents that were declassified, other than those obviously published officially? Yeah. So uh, I'll start maybe with your second question. Because the book, of course, is, is in, um, treats a relatively recent uh, um, period, there, was less, uh, there were less documents available than, say, in, more, in, in books that, that examine more distant historical periods. Having said that, and I was quite surprised to, to discover that. Uh, there was actually quite a lot of uh, documents that one and, and I were, was able to access. Uh, WikiLeaks was extremely useful. There was a lot of declassified documents that came out there. Uh, the Israeli Foreign Ministry actually runs, or used to run, now it's a bit less, a very, very efficient website with a plethora of documents that were declassified. And it's quite intriguing how much information you can get uh, uh, out of that. Um, so I think that that was certainly one aspect. The other one was WikiLeaks. A third one actually were various documents that I was able to retrieve from colleagues. So for example, uh, Professor Avi Schlein was very kind in sharing me some of the official minutes that took place in discussions between uh, the Hamas leadership and the Jimmy Carter Center of Peace, which were all minuted, uh, uh, and I was able to use them in the book. So those are just three examples, actually, of sources that give you quite a lot of uh, uh, official documents declassified, which have uh, very, very interesting and insightful uh, information in them. Um, I think in relation to your, to your question, um, I did not tease out these concepts sort of in a very academic analytical way in interviews that I had with the leading foreign policy makers, but in various questions that I put out to them, 
uh, I did address these components that I've just uh, uh, described. So, for example, you know, interviewing people who work with uh, very closely with Prime Minister Rabin, uh, I, I asked often, you know, was there an intent to scale down the Israeli occupation, or just was this just something that was happening? There, there was clearly an intent to do that. So, there were various ways in actually verifying. And, and, and applying these concepts without necessarily putting them as a crude analytical label uh, in an interview. But did your interviewees agree to the extent that you asked them with your division, uh, analytical division, if you like? Um, I think some, some probably did um, and, and others didn't. Um, I suppose that those who didn't <clears throat> would argue still that Israeli foreign policy is not as organized as these labels suggest, right? That there is still right. quite a lot of murkiness around right. the decision-making. There's a lot of uh, uh, personal uh, um, inputs, whether through emotions, through personal histories and so on and so forth. So I think some of them beg to differ in terms of how organized and how coherent uh, these labels were. But, at the same time, I would say that the vast majority certainly did not object when looking at these three labels, especially since I did use the label engagement quite deliberately rather than peacemaking. So that was quite a conscious decision and one that sort of emerged in conversations with policymakers. Uh, uh, because in many cases, Israel's foreign policy would not necessarily, was not necessarily directed to reach uh, a final peace agreement, even though the other three components, in other words, descaling the Israeli occupation, getting rid of some land in exchange for peace, and putting a bit more premium on diplomacy did exist. So refining those labels, actually arriving to them, was very much also a product of my conversation with policymakers, rather than me sort of imposing the labels on them and saying, that's it, we found the holy grail of organized Israeli foreign policy. That was not the case. Okay. so. You focus in particular on the interplay between domestic politics and foreign policy. Can you elaborate why you have chosen to take that approach? And also, maybe you want to answer the first question uh, uh, separately. How would you assess the significance of external factors? So, for example, can American or EU uh, European foreign policies overcome the, the dynamics of the Israeli political system and force the country to change its behavior regionally or internationally. So that, that's uh, quite a lot of questions in, in one uh, bunch. No, and these are fantastic questions and very intriguing. Uh, maybe I'll take the first one. Uh, uh, um, I'll start with the first one. My emphasis on domestic factors stemmed from uh, an observation, uh, which is that external events are almost a given. For example, the end of the Cold War, or for example, the eruption of the Arab uprisings. They happen. But then of course, how from that point, their impact uh, translates into the foreign policy of individual states, in this case, Israel, depends a great deal uh, uh, on how domestic processes and actors interpret them, perceive them, and understand them. And the end of the Cold War is a really quintessential example in this context. So the Israeli right 
at the time, Yitzhak Shamir, Moshe Arendt, also Binyamin Netanyahu, which of course afterwards rose in the ranks, uh, argued consistently that the end of the Cold War almost doesn't change anything for Israel in terms of the Middle East. The Arabs are still implacable towards Israel. Their aims to uh, destroy the country or harm it are still there. Uh, Yitzhak Shamir, for example, associated those aims very much with historical anti-Semitism. And then by contrast, we see in the same country, the leadership of Labour, Yitzhak Rabin, and of course, more so Shimon Peres, who at the time was the foreign minister, interpreting the very same event in an entirely different way. They claimed that the end of the Cold War brought an end to the Soviet Union, then compounded with that the war in Iraq, put Israel in an unprecedented positive strategic position, which of course was part of the background for them embarking on the peace process with the Palestinians, the Oslo process, uh, and subsequently trying also to uh, uh, conclude a peace agreement with Syria and of course a successful one with Jordan. Uh, the same phenomenon we find in the Arab uprisings. Uh, when Benjamin Netanyahu first heard about the Arab uprisings, he again described it as something that Israel can only be cautious about, whereas his opposition argued that it actually opened a lot of opportunities. So there are various domestic filters, if you like, that really determine how an external event like the Cold War, like the Arab uprisings, uh, uh, like the current pandemic, if you like, will impact the foreign policy of an individual state. And that, that is what really brought me to, to focus on the domestic uh, angle. Now, moving to your second question about to what extent um, domestic, uh, sorry, external actors like the EU or the United States can influence uh, Israel. Uh, I think it does depend a lot on, on, on the extent to which uh, a given um, topic is at the core of Israeli foreign policy or in the periphery. Uh, it also depends if it's issues that have to do with substance or procedure. So what we have seen, for example, is that Binyamin Netanyahu or Yitzhak Shamir uh, were very, very elastic when it came to process, right? The Americans used to make all sorts of requests, which they uh, responded to positively. Um, but when it came to substance, even though the Americans made a lot of requests, sometimes demands, often the Israelis pushed back. And that's, this also happened underneath the prime ministership of Ehud Barak. Conversely, uh, we can see that the Americans can give, especially the Americans, can give a significant uh, uh, tailwind to processes. We saw it with a peace agreement with Jordan, and of course, very recently, we saw it with the Trump administration in the way that it was able to forge together with the Israeli leadership, the Abraham uh, Accords. Um, one last point about the EU, I think in Israeli foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, traditionally, the EU was seen uh, with grave suspicions. And the Israelis have made every effort to marginalize the EU, to keep out the EU from the political uh, uh, activity. But when it came to the economic activity, of course, Israel has always been very forthcoming in trying to create ties that bind with the EU. But on the foreign policy core political issues, the EU has been marginalized. We can maybe discuss uh, afterwards why uh, it has not been able to, if you like, establish for itself a more central role in the foreign policy and particularly in the peace processes that Israel and the Arab world were involved in. So um, one of your um, revelations or interpretations maybe, uh, is that after the Oslo agreement between uh, Rabin and Arafat in September 
1993, and until Rabin's assassination just over two years later, the Israeli Prime Minister was only willing to agree to a Palestinian entity uh, on 60% of the West Bank, rather like uh, Donald Trump's uh, deal of the century, but no more. So do you think that Rabin's interpret, uh, reputation um, as committed to a just and lasting peace with the Palestinians is actually exaggerated and enhanced by, of course, the sad circumstances of his end. I think the tragic circumstances of Rabin's uh, uh, assassination, I think certainly exaggerated the role that reconciliation played in his approach to peace. Uh, and I think Rabin uh, was always and remained a politician and a statesman that was very, very uh, committed and believed in the notion of power politics. And this is really what informed also his approach to the Palestinians. Um, my interviews with his uh, chief of staff, Eitan Haber, and then subsequently with uh, uh, in, in the book that was published as a memoir by his uh, uh, military secretary, Mr. Dani Atom, who subsequently became the head of Mossad as well. Both of them said that from the conversations that they had with Rabin, the maximum that he was willing to uh, uh, if you like, concede to a Palestinian state would be 60% of the West Bank. In fact, it was very funny, uh, Mr. Haber quipped that if Mr. Rabin would have been alive when uh, El Barak made his proposals, he would have probably jumped from a seven-story hotel and, 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 not being, and not wanting to hear anything uh, about that. I asked uh, both of them, I asked actually Eitan Haber, the late Eitan Haber, how, did, how could Rabin reconcile that with the fact that, of course, the Palestinians were not prepared to uh, uh, accept such a resolution? And Mr. Haber uh, quite directly uh, confirmed that Rabin was convinced that the power, that the balance of power of politics was tilted so firmly in Israel's favor that when the moment came, uh, uh, Israel could actually impose upon the Palestinians this kind of agreement whereby. Uh, the, the whole of the Gaza Strip and 60% of the West Bank constitute uh, some form of entity. And interestingly, in the last speech that Rabin gave before he was assassinated, he only talked in terms of a Palestinian entity or, a or something short of an entity. That's the, that's the terms. Those were the terms that he used. He did not use, even at the very last speech before he was assassinated, the concept of a Palestinian state, which I think is very, very telling indeed. And Bibi uh, Netanyahu, of course, famously spoke of a state minus, didn't he? Yeah. He did, and he very much drew uh, a leaf out of Rabin's terminology in that respect, because that was exactly the, the, the terminology, the vocabulary that Rabin was talking about. And indeed, throughout Rabin's term as prime minister, partly, of course, because of domestic politics, we need to remember that the early 90s, the animosity with the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, was still much more raw mm. than it is today. Uh, but still, Rabin was very, very persistent in not really uh, allowing uh, uh, the Palestinians uh, to manifest any kind of signs of statehood in the negotiations. And, and some, I'm sure the audience will remember the endless discussions about how to refer to Mr. Arafat, the president, the Rais, uh, and things like that. 
Okay, um, <clears throat> thank you. So I found uh, in reading your book, uh, the account of the political stroke diplomatic significance of the second intifada, very grim. So uh, on a personal note, I covered the first intifada for the Guardian when hopes you may remember were unusually high in terms of a possible resolution of the conflict. Do you think that hopes of a workable solution to this most toxic and divisive complex have receded since then, since the second intifada? I think absolutely so. I think uh, the, the second intifada together with other developments was certainly uh, um, uh, a watershed moment. Uh, and since then, the hopes and the prospects of realizing uh, uh, the two-state solution in any kind of just uh, fashion have receded uh, uh, considerably. Uh, I focused in the book uh, on the Israeli side, but I also looked at the Palestinian side in the Intifada. Uh, with the Israeli side, uh, since that second Intifada, there was a significant disillusion with the idea that exchanging land for peace increases Israeli security. Uh, after the Intifada, and of course, shortly thereafter came also the Second Lebanon War, and then the end of skirmishes with Hamas in Gaza, uh, the notion that actually exchanging land doesn't really bring peace, but actually exacerbates Israel's security situation. That has been a notion that has become instilled, I think, very much in public, in the public consciousness. Uh, on top of that, the, the very visceral violence in the Second Intifada uh, played a significant role in, in, on both sides, believing that actually uh, there is a desire to have peaceful relations between Jewish Israelis and Palestinians within the area uh, that lies from the Mediterranean Sea in the West uh, uh, and the Jordan River uh, in the East. Uh, and of course, looking at both Israel and the Palestinians, um, within the Palestinian political, uh, I would say, um, leadership, especially the young leadership, there was a profound disillusion disillusion from the peace process. And during that period, again, the inability of the Palestinians really to achieve anything was contrasted with Hezbollah's ability to really bring about Israel withdrawal from Lebanon after 18 years of violent conflict. And meanwhile, when you move to Israel, uh, the Israeli army became a staunch opposer of the peace process, and indeed its conduct, especially in the beginning of the Second Intifada, really derailed any ability to restore relations. Whereas in the early 1990s, uh, the audience and you, are, I'm sure, will remember, the IDF was actually part and parcel of Israel's negotiation. Indeed, it led the negotiations with uh, the Palestinians. So there was this confluence of domestic and regional factors. And of course, to add that, there was the global war on terror. Of course, from 2010, we can discuss that a bit later, there have been even further developments that have, I would say, severely reduced the prospects for a two-state solution uh, uh, along the lines that were, that were believed in uh, up until certainly the mid or late 2000s. <clears throat> so the next question is linked to uh, 
those uh, aspects that we've just discussed. How would you contextualize the recent normalization agreement with the Gulf states of the UAE and Bahrain, plus Sudan and Morocco? Some analysts and experts are claiming that the Arab-Israeli conflict is effectively over. But of course, the Palestinian issue is is becoming uh, more difficult to resolve given the collapse of hopes for a two-state solution. Um, Do you agree? And do you think anybody on either side has a workable strategy for achieving one state with equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians between the river and the sea? So maybe let me start with the second question. And I think at the moment, there isn't any significant player in the Arab-Israeli conflict, Israel-Palestine, or I would say even arguably the international community that has proposed a workable strategy for an equitable one-state entity between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. I have not seen any workable strategy. uh, And indeed, de facto, there is, in a sense, a one-state entity at the moment, uh, uh, which is very stratified, very segmented, uh, 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 and certainly not, uh, and certainly is not just. Um, I think moving on to your first question, the way I would contextualize the recent Abraham Accords is really within the framework, perhaps, that we started the conversation. Uh, The ability of Benjamin Netanyahu to sign and conclude these peace agreements has been a vindication of his policy of entrenchment, at least in the short run. His claim that you can actually make peace, forge peace with the Palestinian, uh, with the Arab world without concluding peace agreement first with the Palestinians has in a way been uh, uh, vindicated. Um, so in that sense, it is, I would say, uh, a victory. But I would emphasize that this is a short-term victory because as long as the occupation of the West Bank continues, the democratic and Jewish nature of the state of Israel, which has been really the core of all Israeli uh, uh, governments since the establishment of the state, is under an increasing threat. Uh, And that is, I think, that tension, there is that fundamental tension between the short-term achievement and the longer-term implications of having these agreements with the periphery, but not resolving the very core issue uh, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Okay, so linked to that, um, this is my last question, because uh, we want to uh, address the questions posed by the audience. Um, what is your assessment of the recent reports of both Human Rights Watch, and before that, the Israeli human rights organization, Tzelem, about uh, comparing the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians to apartheid-era South Africa? So I think to some extent, these uh, reports really are a reflection of uh, of the time, and especially the last 10 years of Mr. Netanyahu's government, in two particular senses. First of all, the passing of the nationhood law, which says explicitly that the state of Israel is exclusively for the Jewish people. That is a fundamental break from, for example, Israel's 
Declaration of Independence, which doesn't make that kind of conditionality and in fact is much more open and liberal in its uh, phrasing. The second, I think, uh, uh, way in which these reports are more reflective of the contemporary scene uh, relates to the question of intent. So if we look at this question of the Israeli occupation in the historical perspective since the end of the Cold War, I think one could make a strong argument that there were at least four or five Israeli prime ministers or Israeli governments rather, that genuinely tried to end or significantly scale down the Israeli occupation. We can think about the Barak, uh, the Barak government of 99-2000, Rabin Peres government, Ehud Olmert's government, and even Ariel Sharon in his latest days with his withdrawal from Gaza. And of course, we don't know what would have happened next. But that makes a strong case that the intent of keeping Israel permanently as an occupying power was not there, which is a precondition to meet the definition of apartheid. Under Mr. Netanyahu, that has changed. We have not seen any intent to scale down the Israeli occupation. Quite the contrary. We know that Netanyahu has rejected all the peace proposals that were made to him that could have brought that to an end. So I think in that sense, and with this I will end, uh, it really depends on the next Israeli leadership, uh, uh, how the picture that is portrayed in these reports will continue. Uh, if there will be a departure from Mr. Netanyahu's practices and a return, a sincere return to negotiations and a sincere attempt to end the Israeli occupation, then these reports will become less significant than they seem to be. However, if that will not be the case, then of course these reports will, might be seen as the first sign that a document articulates how Israel may be seen as a state resembling South African apartheid. And in that case, if this is a durable phenomenon or process, I think they might have a significant impact within the liberal quarters of world governments. Okay, so uh, obviously the questions uh, we um, reflect a lot of what we discussed already, but um, you claim, uh, Gabrielle Vombrook is asking, you claim that the Rabin government wanted to scale down the occupation, but David Gardner, I assume in the Financial Times, argued uh, recently that the biggest single expansion in settler numbers by 50% um, in uh, 1994 to 1996 was not under the irredentist governments led by high watermark of the Oslo peace process. So I think, yeah, thank you, Gabriel, for that question. I think it's a good point. I think, first of all, we need to put things, first of all, in perspective, right? So in the early 1990s, we had approximately 45,000 settlers. Currently, we have 620,000, uh, out of which 413,000 live in the West Bank and 209,000 live around Jerusalem. So it's true that if you stick maybe to the small criteria of numbers, you could make that argument. But if you broaden the context and you look at the very clear, and I would say very brave steps at the time that Rabin took 
relinquishing control over the major Palestinian cities, allowing the Palestinian Authority to establish itself with all the limitations that we know that existed in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Signing the agreement with Yasser Arafat, remember up until 1993, it was illegal with Israelis to even negotiate or talk with the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Um, and let's not also forget the fact that Rabin, the Rabin government was the only government that really put a serious freeze on the settlement. So they could not expand. They, the way they did do that, and in this sense, you're right, Gabriel, is manipulating and taking advantage of the bureaucratic loopholes, which the Rabin government was unsuccessful in sealing. And in that sense, the settlers were extremely successful. But I think if you look at Rabin's record, his tenacity, his willingness to continue with relinquishing Israeli control over the majority of the Palestinians, amid the terrible terrorist attacks that were taking place in Israel at the time, I would still stand behind my argument that there was a sincere intent by the Rabin and Peres government to scale down the Israeli occupation and to eventually create an entity. And I also say that in the book, I cannot say that Rabin was committed to a Palestinian state, but certainly an entity. Uh, uh, and that, as far as I, uh, that is as far as I could say about Rabin. And as, and as Ian and I said, I think, yes, in hindsight, Rabin's role as a peacemaker was glorified, but nevertheless, I would stand behind my argument that he had a sincere intent to scale down the Israeli occupation. So Jim Muir is asking, um, hello, Jim. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Uh, talking of Rabin and Perez makes one realize how much has changed. Is the era of land for peace and a two-state solution now gone irrevocably? irrevocably? Or could pressure from the Biden administration turn things around? So I think my sense is that I wouldn't want to say that it's that it's irrevocably gone, but I think that certainly in the last ten years, especially uh, the the prospects of a two-state solution have really diminished uh, dramatically. Um, and this is not only um, this is not only as a result of what Israel has been doing or the United States. Partly it is, uh, uh, but not only. And maybe I'll say a few things about that. First of all, um, you know, we, we need to think, let's say the Biden administration would impose pressure. What would that be? What would be the, the demand from Israel? Uh, it is difficult to say because the Palestinians themselves are so demanded, uh, are so fragmented. So we don't have at the moment a clear voice from the Palestinians in the same way that we did in the late 1980s and early 1990s about what actually is that the Palestinians want. Under Arafat, it was very clear. They wanted the whole of the West Bank, part of Jerusalem, and right of return. That was something that could, could and was negotiated. At the moment, it is less clear. The other problem is, of course, is that the Americans, until they decide to change it, the official American position is the Trump plan, which has been signed up by the Israeli government. Now, for an Israeli prime minister, to withdraw from that plan would be very, very, very difficult. I would say probably on the verge of impossible after that plan was approved by the United States. And finally, I would say that probably on both sides, Israel and the Israeli Jews and the Palestinians, uh, the disillusionment from the two-state solution 
uh, is very, very significant for the reasons I mentioned before. The only ray of light I see, if one is a subscriber to the two-state solution, is the recent, if you like, legitimation that we have seen in the very recent election of a Jewish-Palestinian or Jewish-Arab-Israeli uh, partnership in the government. This is something unprecedented uh, in Israeli politics. And of course, with the many ironies that we know about the Middle East, it was no other than Benjamin Netanyahu that first gave that legitimacy stamp to actually have a government which would forge a coalition together with the uh, southern faction of the uh, Islamic movement. So that is a very interesting development, but I would say that that development is within the minority of the broader processes that I've described. And one more thing I would add, the fact that we have now uh, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Sudan, Morocco, Jordan, and Egypt, with official ties with Israel, marginalizes, of course, the Palestinian cause even further. Uh, uh, and that regional change, I think, is a very, very significant factor as well, which perhaps has not been completely picked up by uh, uh, many people who look at this uh, uh, conflict. So Jenny uh, asks, does the EU play the innocence card more and more in the context of the Palestinian cause with the result of actually supporting current forms of colonialism? So I think the EU, thank you, Jenny, for that question. I think the EU's role has actually evolved. So if you look at the first decade, the EU was, I think, a really integral and very, very important part of the economic infrastructure that was constructed around the peace process. And the interesting thing about the Oslo peace process was that the belief was that once you create the favorable economic infrastructure, that will then translate into a much more peaceful political environment, which of course was the case with Europe. The problem was that the model that worked for Europe post-World War II did not travel very well when it was to some extent applied to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular. But in that first decade, the EU was absolutely crucial in a lot of, in providing humanitarian aid and development money. Uh, I would say that from probably the, the mid uh, of the 2000s and onwards, the EU is not so much innocent uh, uh, and actually plays multiple roles. Yes, to some extent, it is funding the Israeli occupation. It is also to some extent funding the various corrupt practices by the Palestinian Authority. But the reason why it continues also to do that partly is because the EU really, frankly, has no other way of maintaining its influence apart from providing funds. Uh, and when it comes to Israel-Palestine, the European Union is so fragmented, it can never agree on a coherent foreign policy. So giving money in a way is a kind of a compromise of sorts between uh, let's say, uh, uh, less pro-Israeli countries like, I don't know, traditionally, let's say like Ireland or France, and the more pro-Israeli uh, 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 Visegrad uh, countries and, and Germany, of course, with its complex history. Uh, so to some extent, the economic arm is really reflect the inability of the EU to agree on a more coherent uh, foreign policy and its will to remain present. So it's not so much innocence, uh, uh, as the other factors that I've just described. So uh, Jordan Perry asks, 
is the enduring Israeli occupation in the Palestinian territories and the stratified, in inverted commas, layers of control there, as you highlight, such a long-term existential challenge to Israel. After all, Israel has maintained this for more than 50 years and international pressure has not grown to make it unsustainable. So you're absolutely right. And I think I did not say that it constituted an existential threat to Israel, but I think certainly the protracted occupation, the stratification, uh, the various practices that have been outlined quite well in the Human uh, uh, Rights Watch and, and B'Tselem documents, all these pose a direct threat to Israel remaining a democracy. Uh, and I would say that at the moment already, Israeli democracy is severely impaired by the occupation of the West Bank, by the fact that Israel controls close to 3 million Palestinians without having voting rights, uh, severely constrained in their freedom of movement, freedom of travel, uh, uh, severe impediments of human rights, the list is, is very long. And of course, at some point, um, if the Jewish Israeli majority uh, uh, is outpaced by Palestinian uh, birth growth, which is something, of course, that Israeli politicians have been very acutely sensitive to, then it would be very difficult for Israel to claim uh, itself as a Jewish state if it controls an area where actually the number of Jews is less than the number of Palestinian Muslim or Christian uh, and or Christian uh, Arabs. Uh, now, of course, whether or not that will translate into uh, uh, growing international pressure is a very serious question. I think in the past, there were two factors that mitigated that pressure. One, of course, was the Cold War itself. And then between 1990 and I would say 2009, there was the combination of some Israeli governments being sincerely intent towards trying to resolve the conflict, even though Palestinians would probably argue otherwise, but also because of the severe violence that engulfed both sides. Now, if those factors uh, uh, are slightly receding now, in other words, Israeli governments have less intent to make peace and there is less violence, I think the question of one man, one vote, uh, like we saw in South Africa, might resurface much more voicefully than we have seen in the past. So to conclude this point, I'm not sure that the guide of how much pressure there was in the past necessarily applies to how much pressure there will be in the future. Depends on the, how things will be on the ground. And of course, it also depends how many liberal governments will be elected, especially in the United States. So Katerina de la Cura, a LSE colleague, asks, and I'm, Katerina, I'm um, shortening your question, restricting your question to the second question, because we've already discussed the first question. Um, her question is about changing Israeli perceptions of Iran and its role in the conflict. Well, thank you very much, uh, Katerina, um, um, who's a very close colleague and very close friend as well, for that question. Um, with regards to Iran, uh, that is actually a very interesting uh, question. Um, what we see in relation to Iran is that actually in throughout the 1990s, Iran was a fairly marginal issue in Israeli foreign policy. And I actually show in the book that 
up until probably the late 1990s, Israel really didn't have a foreign policy towards Iran. And it was only really in 2003 that Ariel Sharon decided that Mossad, uh, the Israeli intelligence service, would be the agency responsible for coordinating and leading on the foreign policy against Iran. Uh, this is important because in the early 1990s, uh, uh, and I would say certainly up until the mid 2000s, um, the jury was a bit out, uh, certainly in terms of the broader population, although there was, of course, um, I would say a very negative perception of Iran. Israelis uh, 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 perceived the regime in Iran, especially as a very threatening regime. Uh, but the period when that, if you like, perception became almost entrenched in the Israeli public psyche, but also almost a consensus in the foreign policy elite, really began under uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, he was one of the first politicians that uh, 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 put Israel at the forefront of the conflict with Iran. Uh, up until his premiership, Israel relied on the United States primarily to lead the effort against Iran. And of course, throughout his, large, his last decade in power, he really instilled the notion that Iran was an ex is an existential threat within the Israeli public uh, uh, psyche. There were still uh, segments of the security services that did not buy into Netanyahu's perception, but his public persona, his public campaign, which culminated, some of the audience will remember, in a very confrontational speech in Congress against Barack Obama, when the uh, Iran deal was signed by the Obama administration, really, I think, epitomized his efforts in instilling uh, the notion that Iran is and will remain an existential threat uh, uh, to Israel. So that has advanced very much uh, as a result of Netanyahu's public and private efforts since he returned to power in 2009. Um, Rafael Cohen Almagor says, which Israeli foreign minister impresses you most? Why? And which foreign minister impresses you the least? Okay, well, that, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think, uh, for me, the, uh, the most impressive foreign minister probably uh, will be uh, Shimon Peres. I think uh, in terms of, not so much because I agree or disagree with what he, he, he stood for, but if you look for a foreign minister who both had a vision and an operational plan of implementing it, uh, I think Peres... Uh, is very much uh, uh, up there. Uh, I think the foreign minister that perhaps impressed me um, um, the least, um, I think there are probably uh, two candidates. Uh, one would have to be, I'm afraid to say, uh, Tsipi Livni, uh, because she was given a portfolio and almost a carte blanche of negotiating uh, a peace deal with the Palestinian under Ehud Olmert's government, uh, but she bungled it. There were talks and talks and talks and talks and nothing went forward. And I think somebody more tenacious with a greater vision and, in, and, and intent would have probably gotten something much more from those uh, 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 peace talks. Uh, I think she would probably be the one off the top of my head that was the least uh, impressive uh, 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 for me. So, um, uh... 
Okan Arikan asks, what role can we contribute to the contemporary condition of lack of unity within the uh, anti-Israeli Middle East camp, i.e. the so-called Middle East Cold War, Arabs versus non-Arabs, Shia, Sunni, face-off, etc., etc., in the formation of modification of your three analytical categories. Is there a pattern of change of the foreign policy uh, behavior of Israel vis-a-vis the regional circumstances? Um, I think that that is a really interesting question. And I think it, it does go back to the sort of, to, to, to the core of, 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 uh, of the book. Um, I think we as, I don't know what, you know, who, who do we mean by we? Uh, I think the, the regional landscape currently in the Middle East uh, is it has changed quite dramatically since the end of the Cold War. And the main change that has happened is, of course, the collapse of Syria, Iraq, and Libya, uh, which were really at the forefront of, of what was called the, the sort of uh, uh, resistance front uh, to Israel and generally to, to the peace process. I think if you ask me what is the thing that we can contribute the most, I've always found the most promising framework to be something along the Arab Peace Initiative that was proposed by Saudi Arabia in 2003 and interestingly was never really picked up. The virtue of this proposal was that for any agreement that Israel and the Palestinians would reach, the Arab world and the broader Middle East would, if you like, align to it and give to it uh, its blessing. Uh, I think that is really the only way that we can uh, uh, that we can expect some sort of regional framework to act as a scaffold, as a support to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. The other way that I think the region could uh, um, contribute, but of course it won't do that, is actually not to try and derail a peace process should that peace process uh, uh, come about again, which is perhaps unlikely. But what we saw in the early 1990s is that the interference certainly by Iran and Syria in support of Hezbollah and Hamas respectively did not particularly help uh, uh, the peace process. Uh, and I think that, you know, if, if, if we could perhaps, if, if the region would be less intent in trying to derail uh, uh, a peace process uh, and in contrast would actually support it, we're pr- probably more likely to see something positive coming out of that. Although, as I said, the prospects for that are very, very slim at the moment. So Laid Zahlami asked what implications um, for the re-establishment of relations between Morocco and Israel are there for the uh, Maghreb region? That, that's a very interesting question, and I think there are a number of levels here. One level, certainly when it comes to Morocco, is the sort of traditional historical ties between the large uh, Jewish Moroccan community that lives predominantly in Israel, but not only, also in Europe, and Morocco itself. And I think in that sense, there is a lot of potential in sort of restoring those ties on a cultural, social, and even on an economic level. Uh, On top of that, I think uh, there is the economic level. And of course, the the, uh, Israel is quite renowned. And this has been part of the incentives of the Gulf states to sign the agreement with it in its high tech provisions, its 
high-tech agricultural, uh, uh, water technologies, and so on. And this is something, of course, that will also benefit uh, the Maghreb uh, countries as well, Morocco, and should uh, Tunisia and Algeria uh, uh, join up, that would do that as well. Having said that, I think we also need to remember that there are challenges here. Uh, and the challenges are that although there seems to be uh, greater acceptance within the Arab foreign policy elite, at least in the countries that have signed an agreement between uh, with Israel, the peace agreement, I'm not sure that that recognition is shared uh, uh, um, you know, on a wider scale. And similarly, when you look in Israel, it was quite striking that the, uh, I would say, elation that followed the peace agreement with Egypt or the peace agreement even with Jordan was not replicated when Mr. Netanyahu came back and announced these four peace agreements. This was seen as something that was a bit in the margins, on the sidelines. So I think we also need to be quite cautious and recognize that, that the public support that we would like to have for these peace agreements is not necessarily there. And that would be a potential vulnerability. So uh, Jonathan Hoffman asks, the UN General Assembly is poised to adopt a political declaration reaffirming the uh, 2001 Durban Declaration and calling and issuing a call for its full uh, implementation. This will be a declaration that a Jewish state is a racist state, the equivalent of Zionism is racism or apartheid Israel. It is scheduled to be adopted at the Durban uh, Four meeting, a fourth uh, iteration of the 20. Um, 2001 racism, anti-racism conference held in Durban. Durban 4 has been convened by the UN for September the 20th, 22nd, 2021 in New York to mark the conference's 20th anniversary. The United States has already pulled out of Durban 4 do you think the UK should pull out? <clears throat> well, I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting question about what the UK uh, uh, should do uh, uh, or not. Um, fortunately, I'm not an expert on UK, on UK politics. I'm not sure uh, I would want to give that, that kind of advice um, to the UK government. I think what I can perhaps shed some light on is really, you know, what considerations would inform the UK's decision uh, 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 either way. Certainly if the UK would uh, remain and not follow the United States, that would be a clear message, uh, a very clear message that the UK identifies with the claim that Israel, uh, with the various claims that you've just outlined. Uh, and of course, that would be a very serious uh, claim coming from a very close ally of Israel, something that, um, you know, I'm sure the UK government would, uh, uh, would recognize the, the symbolism of. On the other hand, if the UK uh, uh, you know, follows the track of the United States, then of course it signals that whereas there are various trends that we have discussed today that push Israel closer perhaps to that model uh, that looks like apartheid, uh, I'm not sure it's the best analogy, but certainly we all know what we're talking about here, occupation, 
depriving millions of people from human rights, from voting, uh, uh, severe restrictions on freedom of travel, and so on and so forth. If the UK does not withdraw, then it means that uh, either it does not take those claims seriously enough, or that it still believes that Israel does not meet that description quite yet. And of course, that, that is what the advocates of Israel claim, especially when they point to what is happening outside the occupied territories. And I think, you know, it is a bit of a mixed bag now. Uh, I did say before that there were some factors that I think have pushed Israel closer, but I don't think it is still a foregone conclusion that Israel has become already irrevocably uh, an apartheid state. I'm not sure I would support that claim. Jeffrey Ben-Natan is asking, have you any sympathy for the idea that the Palestinians of the West Bank, as opposed to those of Gaza, and Jews are historically one and the same people, divided by the exile to Babylon, to which one, those who became Jews, were exiled, and the other, the Palestinians, remained. Uh, on that closeness of DNA between the two is a scientific legacy of this relationship. Okay. Well, I think, you know, that, that's an interesting, it's an interesting one. But uh, I think my opinion on this is, is the following. Um, the, the ancient history, uh, uh, that may or may have not happened uh, does not really determine uh, contemporary politics, right? We, we, we would not ask, uh, you know, whether um, the same question about Europeans uh, uh, or about various people uh, in other parts of the world. So I think irrespective to the answer, the fact is that the, the Zionist movement and the Palestinian national movement have been in a conflict for the best part of the last hundred years. And that is a fact that won't be changed even if the DNA matched 100% on ancestry since Babylon up until the beginning of the conflict. And that conflict, I think, is the, uh, uh, and that conflict and what we have, the various processes associated to that uh, is really what is defining the relationship between these people. And the main question that we should ask ourselves is how do we address the political, international, social, economic challenges that the conflict has posed to the two people and whether those can be entangled in a nonviolent way and produce a better life for both Jews, Israelis and Palestinians in some kind of equitable and just solution. And I think that unfortunately or fortunately, going back to ancient history is not gonna provide us with a very good guide in how to do that, even if we could show a hundred match uh, 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 in DNA. So Chris Blacktop asked the cancellation of the recent calculation, uh, cancellation of the Palestinian elections is a depressing yet entirely predictable event. How will the Israeli government view this? Well, I think the Israeli government, if we ever get a new government in Israel, uh, um, that is a separate question, but I think <clears throat> Certainly for the Israeli government, that would be something that they, there would not be a profound disappointment in Jerusalem. And the reason, there are two major reasons for that. First of all, the Israelis have raised the concern to the Palestinians uh, in private and in security dialogue or sec uh, via security services that they are severely concerned of Hamas actually taking over 
uh, 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 should there be an election in, in the West Bank. And I think having to deal with that kind of outcome would have been something that would have been very tricky for an Israeli government, which is why the Israelis would be quite happy to postpone the elections in the Palestinian Authority uh, indefinitely. The other issue, of course, is that any election within the Palestinian territories raises the question of whether Palestinians can vote from Jerusalem. The Israelis have often, have not often, have always categorically disallowed that. There were some um, um, imaginative solutions that were found, but generally elections in the Palestinian territories remind the world that there should be a democracy in Palestine, reminds the world that Jerusalem is still a divided city, notwithstanding the Israeli claims, and raises the prospect that Hamas will be elected to power. And for all of these reasons, I think an Israeli government, uh, uh, there is a, a certain sigh of relief in Jerusalem for the fact that Mr. Abbas has decided to postpone uh, these elections, although I can very much sympathize with the disappointment that is felt further afield. Okay, thank you, Amnon, for that. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. You've uh, answered uh, many questions of both of mine and of the listeners, the participants, with uh, impressively, uh, uh, impressively uh, factual-based knowledge. Thank you for that, and thank you for everybody who took part. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.